Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The notion of self-conscious multiculturalism is not new. The term convivencia is used to describe the relatively easy coexistence, literally living together, of Jews, Christians and Muslims in medieval Spain, which ended with the Inquisition and expulsion of Jews and Muslims in 1492. In the 20th century, America was described as a melting pot and the land of the free, although the African-American community, which denotes descendants of enslaved Africans, brought to the 13 American colonies during the Atlantic slave trade, would exclude themselves from that self-congratulatory recipe. Multiculturalism is our topic this week. Should we think melting pot or mixed salad? We found a fascinating visual parallel to the idea of multiculturalism in the Naked Scientist's archive. David Fatal described the early attempts at 3D visualisation in the show The Future of digital storage. Yeah, the display doesn't know where you're located, and so uh, we take the, the brute force, uh, you know, approach where the display actually sends all possible perspective, all possible images of the 3D object simultaneously, you know, in parallel in space, so that any viewer, not only one, but you could be, you can have ten viewers at different positions around the display, and each one of the viewer would have a different image which is right or left eye, and so they would all be able to see simultaneously in 3D. David Fatal's idea of many different visual perspectives seems close to the experience of multiculturalism, and the brute force approach he refers to interestingly reflects the fears that some have about a sort of multiculturalism by diktat. David Perry here. With me to discuss multiculturalism are the eminent sociologist Professor Tarek Madud, founder of the Research Centre for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship at the University of Bristol, who's written widely about these matters over many years. Alongside Tariq is a familiar voice to listeners, but he's sitting on the other side of the mic this week, Dr Ed Kessler, founder-president of the Wolf Institute and leading thinker in Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations. So, Tariq, I think it's fair to say the idea of multiculturalism is now widely accepted as a public good. But do we really understand it, or in our heart of hearts, do we really accept it? Well, it all depends on what you mean by multiculturalism. Now, I'm sure you knew I was going to say that, because there are so many different meanings of the term, 
and I tend to work with my own limited meanings. So I better say what that is. First of all, I'm mainly interested in political multiculturalism. So political multiculturalism is not about neighborhoods. It's not specifically about cultural encounters or museums. It's about the political relationship between people. What kind of people? Citizens. So citizens for me is the core concept from which multiculturalism is derived. And one of the important features of citizenship is equality. We normally understand equality to mean everybody having the same rights, the same opportunities, the same duties. So basically, sameness. And the opposite of that is discrimination or inequality. Well, what multiculturalism does, it says that that classic understanding of what we might call liberal citizenship, of liberal equality, is not enough, that it is too limited and partial a perspective upon our political relations. So what is to be added to that? Multiculturalism says what needs to be added is a second concept, and this concept of equality brings in the idea of difference. It doesn't override or displace the idea of equality as sameness, but it adds to it. It adds to it by saying, well, we all have important identities which manifest themselves in our public space and in our relationship with each other, including our political relationships, including our whole political system, our polity. And these identities are to do with ethnicity, religion, national origins, And that's what we then begin to call multiculturalism. Important thing here that multiculturalism brings in is not just difference, but the idea of groups. This concept of group is something quite additional to liberalism. Do you assume that these aspects of religion, ethnicity and nationality, which you touched on, are subsumed into the political question? It seems to me one of the reasons why there are public concerns about multiculturalism is because it's not being accepted. Everything you say is very logical, but fundamentally people are concerned about the implications of what they understand multiculturalism to be. And I just wonder whether it's the religious aspect, which is the one that's raising the most concerns. Is that also found in your research? I think that people are happier with multiculturalism when it's just about culture. Multiculturalism begins to be very controversial with the satanic versus affair. Because here you begin to have a group of people, namely British Muslims, but other Muslims were involved as well, who begin to say, we are being disrespected in this society by a book that we find thoroughly offensive and unacceptable, which is being praised, lauded and celebrated as a fine piece of literature And there is no law or policy or institution that we can refer to to protect us from this humiliation. That, if you like, is the beginning of modern, controversial British multiculturalism. Up to then, it was a lot happier. You know, slappy, clappy, saris, samosas, steel bands and so on. 
So yes, then we come to multiculturalism as a political idea and not just about cultural flavors. Let's go back into history and see if there are any societies we can learn from when it comes to multiculturalism. Ed, did multiculturalism in any sense exist in biblical times? Well, thanks, David. It's, it's interesting to be on the other side of the microphone, I have to say. I don't think there's the concept of multiculturalism before the Enlightenment. But in the Bible, there were three categories, if you like, of one might use the word foreigner or person. You, you had the native Israelite, and the Hebrew term there is Ezrach. And then you have the Nochri, the foreigner, who has no citizenship rights at all. That'd be somebody who visits, maybe doing some kind of business, but the Nochri has no rights. But then you have this intermediate category, which I suppose is the nearest we get to it in pre-modern times, which is the Ger or Ger Toshav. That's the resident alien, the stranger in your midst, who you do have a responsibility for. So you may argue there are, I don't know, the seeds of multiculturalism there. Also in biblical times, you know, the outsider is a threat. You think of Amalek and, and the threat to the ancient Israelites. But then you have the story of Jonah, where the Ninevites end up being the good guys, if you like, and Jonah, who represents the Israelites, the bad guys. But David, you mentioned the Convivencia at the beginning, and that's often referred to as a period of multiculturalism, although I think the living alongside one another or that sort of coexistence isn't multiculturalism in the way that Tariq's defined it. And one other period in the pre-modern times or pre-enlightenment times is, of course, the Ottoman Empire, which proudly proclaimed all these different minorities. And indeed, a bit like the Ger Toshav, those groups had rights. They may not have been full citizens, but the Dimis, that's Jews and Christians, had particular rights that other communities didn't have. So I think there were signs of multiculturalism, incipient multiculturalism, if you like, but it was the Enlightenment that really began the process towards the equality that Tarek began with, although it was equality with a condition, the condition being that you had to give up everything else to be a French a man, because it was mainly men, and that meant giving up your religious affiliation to become a full citizen of France and other nations. That is exactly what I was referring to as the classic liberalism and individualism of sameness. What I'd add to your biblical account is a certain Muslim understanding, which has become more prominent, but probably has recurred in debates at various times. So a lot of Muslims refer to what is sometimes called as the charter or the constitution of Medina. So when the Prophet Muhammad left Mecca, it was a kind of de facto expulsion from his home city of Mecca. He went to Medina and he didn't have an army, but he, had, he obviously had followers, you know, Muslims. There weren't so many, probably just hundreds. And he was welcomed into Medina and he drafted a kind of, as it were, peaceful coexistence agreement. Some of the key groups within the city included some Arab tribes, but also included Jews. Prophet Muhammad's constitution, as I say, called the Constitution of Medina, emphasizes religious equality. It's regarded as one of the first historic documents anywhere in the world that gives that kind of equality and participation in the same public life, the same polity, as it were, across religious groups, not just to individuals. So it wasn't a kind of freedom of conscience, everyone can believe what they like, though there was obviously some freedom of religion involved. Religious authorities had quite a lot of control over their own communities. And that's a kind of model that Muslims have used a number of times. 
another classic case is the Ottoman millets that you mentioned. And to some extent, we find this in various parts of the Middle East and in India, historic India, which to some extent the British used as well. And that, you know, ultimately also led to a kind of communalism. So there is a kind of what we might call religious pluralism built into at least one strand of Islamic socio-political thinking and practice. It's one of the problems we've got with this subject that since the Enlightenment, the discussion has been almost exclusively taken from a European perspective. And it's a European notion of what constitutes multiculturalism that is dominant. Whereas we need to consider some of the things that you've just said, Tariq, coming from different perspectives. When we do that, people accuse others of rewriting history, which I think is a bit of a nonsense. It's not rewriting history at all. So, I mean, I'm not a historian, but I very much take the point that you've just made, that we shouldn't just look at these things from a Western point of view, when in many ways, if we look at the history of the world, Europe has sometimes been the least hospitable to cultural difference and religious difference. So for most of its you know, history, Europe has been almost a mono-religious continent, though, of course, yes, there have been Jews and, and Muslims in Andalusia and uh, a couple of other places. And, of course, Christians divide themselves into various groups. But nevertheless, the kind of rich, deep diversity that one has at various times in the Middle East, in India, in Southeast Asia, Europe hasn't really experienced that. And what we're finding is that we clearly can learn from other places because there is deeper historic diversity in other places like India. Those places often have less constitutionally entrenched individual rights and protections, especially protection for individual conscience. So they can be a religious plurality, but more posed conformity within each religious group. So, you know, the rabbis, the ulema, the Hindu Brahmin priesthood and so on, they have a lot of power in certain kinds of religious plurality, power that, to take up what Ed was saying, the thinkers of the Enlightenment argued was a deprivation of human freedom. And so they wanted emancipation, above all from, say, the Catholic Church. They wanted emancipation from religious authorities and religious control. The more multiculturalist societies in this world still, if you like, are working to a pre-Enlightenment pattern. So the ideal synthesis is to combine the respect for individual rights, dignity and freedom with the respect for cultural difference and identities belonging to groups other than simply the nation state. This is Naked Reflections with me, David Perry. My guests are Tarek Madud and Ed Kessler, and we're talking about multiculturalism. In an earlier edition of Naked Reflections on the subject of racism, writer and academic Kenny Monrose made this striking observation. I would like to, to just see people being dealt with in an even-handedly fashion, and we can maybe move away from these classifications that we have, such as BAME and coloured and, and, and West Indian and, and Black British and all these types of things that seem to change every decade. I mean, I'm just aghast at the way that these classifications are put into place 
Um, and it will just be a just be a, a great day when we're just looked upon as being human beings. So, Ed, Kenny's calling for what I suppose George Orwell called common decency, but his comments do raise the issue of identity politics, which can be destructive or futile. Do you agree? I do agree, actually. I think it seems to be the topic of the moment, doesn't it, David? Identity politics. And one of the reasons for that, and be interested to hear what Tarek has to say, is there is a struggle between these different aspects of our identity. We seem to have moved from a sort of hybrid identity comfort zone. I'm a white Jewish male from the UK, respectabled, uh, slightly gray-haired. So I have all these different aspects of, of who I am, a father, a husband, a son, and so on, to one aspect of our identity suppressing the others because there's something that's being pressured, that's being pushed so hard that it rises to the fore. Tariq touched on the implications of the Enlightenment or liberalism and neoliberalism and so on. But what seems to have happened is that we seem to be pushed towards one aspect of who we are over and against the others. And it seems to me that's generated this discomfort and this outcry of identity politics. I suppose I'm concerned the genie is out of the bottle and it's difficult for it to be pushed back in. And the early concepts of multiculturalism, and Tarek mentioned the concept of people of the book that are in all our faith traditions, seem to be being pushed back by the more nationalist, religious extremist elements within all faiths, not just the Abrahamic, but also in India. So yes, identity politics is coming to the fore, and we need a better way of handling it. Otherwise, we're going to become more polarized than we are at the moment. Isn't one of the dangers that once you start on identity politics, you get a sort of salami effect where you're starting with a large group that's not quite adequate and then you cut it down to a smaller group and a smaller group. It gives a sense of undermining any sort of common purpose in society. i got to say that that is a risk insofar as we see it happening. Sometimes we choose to be or others force us into a corner where we seem to only have one identity and that identity is in some kind of competitive zero-sum game with other people's one identity. And that's obviously not a satisfactory way of living. I personally don't know a single multiculturalist thinker who thinks like that. So this is, if you like, multiculturalism gone bad, if it is multiculturalism at all, rather than anything to do with the ideas of multiculturalism. You remember I said right at the very beginning, multiculturalism is derived from citizenship. So that's what we have in common our citizenship. That's just, you know, political affairs. So there's never a question of simply a variety of differences. And so we need to always relate our group membership, our cultural, religious, racial, ethnic identity to the whole, to what we have in common, which is our British citizenship. But, and this is where we come to the issue of rewriting history that you mentioned, Often, our British citizenship rejects the identity that we value. It says, you know, black people are inferior or black people not truly British. And so then we have a struggle to make a multicultural Britishness that we can all be part of. So we're not breaking apart because we all want to be different, but we're fighting to be included in the whole which tells too narrow a story. We need a more 
inclusive and plural whole. And that's exactly what multiculturalism is about. Remaking our idea of being British, not dethroning it, not ejecting it, not fragmenting it, but remaking it so that the population of people who are British today and will be British tomorrow can think together about a common belonging. We've been talking about, is there a pushback against multiculturalism or is it alternatively an idea that everybody now accepts? Because that was also said in the introduction. Well, actually, both of those things are true in certain ways. I think that we've become a very polarized society around the idea of difference or multiculturalism or what some people will call identity politics. And so roughly about a third of the country, I think, is very pro-diversity. This is true, especially in the urban centers, in the university towns and cities and amongst young people. But about a third of this country are a little bit fearful, perhaps quite fearful, of multiculturalism. And multiculturalism is part of too much change happening too quickly. And I think this was also tied up with the European Union and migration and Brexit uh, referendum vote. And then we got a third of people in the middle who are not so committed to one side or the other, share aspects of both or a bit confused about choosing between them and so on. I think this polarization is very dangerous. As a multiculturalist, I definitely want to make a contribution to overcoming that polarization, not deepening it. And I appreciate that multiculturalism is one of the factors that's responsible for the polarization. But that's because, as I was saying a moment ago, we need to remake Britishness. I think that what we need to do, we meaning multiculturalists or pluralists, pro-diversity people, we need to understand the concerns of people that we frighten, the people that we make fearful and angry, the anti-multiculturalists. What about the position of religious schools in this discussion? Ed, do you think they're a positive or a negative? Thanks, David. (laughs) They're both and, actually. One of the reasons why parents are so keen to send their children to Church of England or other faith schools is because many of them, the vast majority of them, are very good and their children receive excellent education. But there is a danger if faith schools only educate children from one particular distinct community, one particular Christian denomination or a Jewish faith school or a Muslim or Hindu or whatever, because those children need to meet others. And if we want from our schools children to graduate with an understanding of other communities, whether they're communities of color or religion, then surely those schools need to welcome them all. Now, I remember having this debate with the Cardinal of Westminster, Vincent Nichols, and also the Chief Rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, who were disappointed with my personal views on the benefits of diversity in faith schools, because, of course, they have to serve the communities of which they are head. And if they can't get their Jewish kids into a Jewish school or Catholic children to a Catholic school, the buck stops with the head of that particular community. But it does seem to me that we shouldn't be draconian about it and ban faith schools. I think we should be encouraging those faith schools to make sure those children don't just learn about another faith. That's not enough. Those children have to meet children of other faiths, ideally in their own playground, or if that's not possible, then in the playgrounds of other schools. 
I'd like to say something positive on behalf of at least certain kinds of faith schools. They're not all the same, obviously. So uh, before we lived in Bristol, we lived in Oxford. My elder daughter went to an Anglican primary school, which was very inclusive of in relation to faith as well as race, ethnicity and so on. So they acknowledged and talked about Eid and Hanukkah and Diwali. They encouraged children to talk about their religious family background. If you walked into the school, you saw all kinds of paintings of uh, Hindu gods and so on the children had been doing. So it wasn't in any sense religiously exclusivist. Also, I know from research that some Muslim schools, state-supported Muslim schools, there aren't that many, you know, less than 20, but some of them have had such good reports about their citizenship classes. They are used as exemplars of citizenship education. They take the idea of their pupils growing up to be British citizens very seriously. I mean, obviously, they place enormous emphasis on Islam as well. And one of the things that we did in our report in relation to state-funded religious schools, which we realised were, as you said, a bit of you know good and bad, is that we thought that there could be a recommendation that could be linked to state funding that a faith school should strive to have, say, 25% of its pupil role from outside its own faith, so that there would be some mixture and people would not only know about their own faith, because I think that is quite wrong. To be in a multicultural society, a multi-faith society, you have to know about how other people think and feel, what matters to them, what hurts them. And I think that religious schools should do that, just as secular schools should do that. All our schools should be doing that if they're funded out of the public purse. Something good to stop on there. Thanks to my guests, Ed Kessler and Tarek Madud, and thanks to you, wherever you are, for listening. You'd be welcome to contact us at Naked Reflections. You can find us at the Wolf Institute. Send an email or a Facebook message. Check out our back catalogue of episodes from addiction to zoonosis. You can also find Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. Ed will be back where he belongs on the other side of the mic next week with some more guests. 